Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. With in and out of this world, material and extraterrestrial bodies in the nation of Islam, Stephen Finley examines the religious practices and discourses that have shaped the nation of Islam in America, drawing on the speeches and writing of figures such as Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, Warth Dean Muhammad, and Louis Farrakhan, Finley shows that the nation of Islam and its leaders use multiple religious symbols, rituals, and mythologies meant to recast the meaning of the cosmos and create new transcendent and imminent black bodies whose meaning cannot be reduced to products of racism. Whether examining how the myth of Yaqub helped Elijah Muhammad explain the violence directed at black bodies, how Malcolm X made black bodies in the Nation of Islam publicly visible, or the ways Farrakhan's discourses on his experiences with the Mother Wheel UFO organized his interpretation of black bodies, Finley demonstrates that the Nation of Islam intended to retrieve, reclaim, and reform black bodies in a context of anti-black violence. In our conversation, we discuss the theoretical framework of in or out of place, the body as both social and symbolic, the Nation of Islam mythological and cosmological narratives, Elijah Muhammad's theological vision for African Americans, Malcolm X's focus on civil and human rights movements, Warth D. Muhammad's notion of race, the identity of Balalians, Louis Farrakhan's mystical extraterrestrial experiences, and women's embodiment in the nation of Islam. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, here's my conversation with Stephen Finley about In and Out of This World, Material and Extraterrestrial Bodies in the Nation of Islam, published with Duke University Press in 2022. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you doing? Good morning, and and thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I'm doing pretty well. Great. Yeah, it's it, I'm excited, too, because this really is a, a wonderful book uh, in and out of this world, material and extraterrestrial bodies in the nation of Islam. Um, I think a lot of people will be excited to, to hear this conversation and a lot of people will be excited to, to get their hands on this book. So I hope they will soon. Um, we always start uh, our new books interviews a little bit with uh, about our authors, though. So if you could, uh, could you share with us a little bit about uh, your background, training, uh, perhaps moments or mentors that were influential for you in terms of uh, what brought you to the study of religion and the particular subjects you're interested in. Sure, I appreciate that. I, I grew up in Southern California, in Santa Ana, California, which is just south of Los Angeles. And I've always been interested in uh, religion. I moved uh, in the mid-90s to Virginia, And I did my first graduate degree there at Virginia Union University, uh, which was actually in the School of Theology. Um, And so I always knew that the study of religion 
was something that I that I wanted to do. I think it was at that at that point where I decided I really wanted to be a professor, and that was in the mid '90s, mid to late 1990s. I applied to Rice University in 2002, and I was accepted there. And my statement, you know, you have to write a personal statement, as you know, for these applications, engaged African-American, Muslim, and Hebrew movements. And so I've always been interested in, in these particular African-American religious currents, uh, whereas the field of uh, the study of African-American religion is, is largely dominated by by Christian studies and black church studies. And so I was really happy to end up at Rice University uh, where I could study with uh, a really great scholars uh, related to this project, including David Cook, uh, whose work you probably know in Islamic studies. And uh, my dissertation, which was on the nation of Islam uh, was formative uh, in, for this project. And uh, the late Lawrence Mamiya, whose work you, you may also know, uh, was uh, uh, on my committee. And so I've, I've always been interested in trends outside of, of churches in African-American religion, especially those that are esoteric and mystical. And so uh, this, this project came together in a way that uh, captured all of my interests at the time. And, uh, and as I reworked the project uh, over time, I tried to incorporate some of those, uh, those, those emphases uh, on the esoteric and UFOs and those kind of things that interest me so much these days. Yeah, that stuff is, uh, it's unique. And there's not a lot of people that uh, are working on it, especially within the Nation of Islam. Uh, so it's great to to kind of get that perspective from your book. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the project kind of um, started to emerge for you and come together, uh, especially around one, one of the things I think that the book does really well is kind of makes this a very interesting theoretical uh, kind of intervention around um kind of the, the the idea of embodiment and the kind of racial logics that go along with that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this started to form for you? It sounds like some of this work was done for your dissertation, but it's, Correct. it's been kind of, uh, you know, cooking for a long time, it seems. So uh, how, how did it come together? Well, I appreciate that acknowledgement first. I, I was interested in an approach to the Nation of Islam that would be unique uh, or largely unique among scholarship on the Nation of Islam. That is to say, a lot of the projects are descriptive and those are important projects. But I wanted to go a step further than some of the projects I have in mind, many of them, and talk not just about what the Nation of Islam was doing, but also what it means, why they were doing it. And uh, like you said, the, the, the racial logics uh, and religious, uh, behind a lot of the Nation of Islam's practices and discourses. And so it, it came together in, in, in that way, uh, trying to make sense of uh, the nation from a religious studies perspective, that is, with theory and method in mind. And so I'm sure as you read the book, you can you can see that that's part of what you're, you're signaling in your question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, so one one of the kind of uh, theoretical 
threads throughout the book is this uh, this use of this idea of black bodies and then black bodies that are in place and out of place. And yes. uh, I, I've already recommended and, and sent the, uh, I'm glad the intro is online. I've already sent it to, to someone uh, to recommend it to them. But can you explain kind of this theoretical framework that you use for the book? Sure. Uh, one of the, one of the, so, so again, my, my, my point here is to try to, to give some coherence to what the Nation of Islam is doing and why over against these prevailing narratives uh, about the Nation of Islam, almost all of which are, uh, are, are false. Uh, almost nothing that uh, you read or your audience will read on the internet and in, and in more uh, popular venues are accurate with respect to the nation of Islam. They really get reduced to a, to a couple pejorative tropes. And they're far more complicated than that. And so with uh, uh, Black Bodies in and out of place, this, this theoretical framework that I use to, to help make sense of the nation of Islam, I was trying to make sense of, of how the nation of Islam in various moments uh, in, their, in their life uh, how they gave new meaning to black embodiment, whose primary meaning uh, has been attached to blackness by way of slavery and lynching and Jim Crow and philosophies of black inferiority and so forth. And so uh, one of the things that black bodies in and out of place helps us to see is the enormous complexity and the ways that cosmologies, social systems, and bodies are intertwined. That, that's really important. I mean, that's really what I was trying to get at. How is Black and bodies, and indeed, how are all bodies connected to social systems, their meaning connected to social systems, which themselves are connected to cosmologies and ways of understanding the world? And so I wanted to see the nation of Islam in that larger complicated context in order to, to, to make more sense and to give uh, shed more light on why they were doing the things they were doing with the, with the rituals, uh, including you know, how they dressed, uh, the food they ate, and so on. Now, um, some, some listeners might not be uh, totally familiar with the Nation of Islam, um, do you think you could just give us some key things we need to know about the Nation of Islam as a, a kind of tradition uh, to get into your project? What what are kind of the, the key features you think people need to know about? Sure. I, I'm talking about the Nation of Islam uh, in, in particular, um, as we as we understand it, uh, through uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam. Of course, there are lots of Nation of Islams. There are always there always have been. Um, uh, when Elijah Muhammad, the early prophet, uh, died in 1975, uh, there were probably at least a, a dozen splinter groups um, that emerged that all claimed the legitimate and, uh, and rightful heirs to, to his teachings. And um, I'm looking at the nation of Islam. I'm, I'm, I'm starting and taking a sort of a retrospective view. I'm looking at the Nation of Islam uh, uh, from, from Louis Farrakhan and before that, and tying him to that lineage um, 
because he does. I mean, there are some important things that he says and does that uh, for him makes his nation of Islam the legitimate nation of Islam. But even to this day, there are rival groups in the nation of Islam, a few of which actually started before the death of Elijah Muhammad in, in 1975. But the group traces its lineage uh, back to Detroit uh, in 1930. Uh, incidentally, and very symbolically, of course, they claimed July 4th, 1930, as the day that they were that they were founded there in Paradise Valley in Detroit. And so that's the nation of Islam uh, that interests me. Uh, but, I, but I did want to make the, the, the point for listeners that there are lots of other groups that are called the Nation of Islam, each of which claims to be the legitimate heir to the, the teachings of Elijah Muhammad that they all claim came from the founder, Master Farad Muhammad, who was initially understood as God for the movement. And uh, you talk about some of these kind of origins um, when in the beginning of the book where you focus on Elijah Muhammad. And, uh, it, you know, one of the things that I think is is very um, helpful about your book is you kind of lay out these what we might think of as kind of a theological vision for each yes. of these figures um, or and even a cosmological vision. So uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, who Elijah Muhammad was and what his theological vision was for African-Americans in the uh, kind of mid 20th century? Sure. That, that's actually kind of a complicated Question. Elijah Muhammad was born uh, right around 1897 in October, I think October 7th. And he was born at a time uh, in Georgia, in uh, Cordell, Georgia, when uh, African Americans were being lynched all around him. In fact, um, one of the traumatic events of his life, I think he might have been 10, 11, somewhere in there was when his friend uh, uh, Howard uh, was lynched. And the, this, this kind of violence, this kind of uh, uh, white racial terror and violence that was directed at specifically at Black bodies was uh, really formative for him. Uh, and of course, his background, uh, as many African-Americans in the South, was a, was a Christian one. And that's that's really important in terms of how he started thinking about uh, the world and trying to make sense of it. And lynchings became really, really important to him. I mean, one of the traumatic events, of course, was uh, when an African-American male, because uh, most of them, uh, the lynchings were men, was lynched in his hometown. And the white people who, who lynched this person put the body in the center of the black community as, as a sign to, to black people that this is what happens when they step out of place, when uh, they are perceived not to be in their cosmologically uh, designated position of inferiority in this world, a sort of cosmology, white cosmology, um, that had white people at the center as a given. Like this wasn't, this wasn't a chance, this is the way of the universe. 
that white people were centered and were always to be in charge. And he grew up um, at a time, you know, at the uh, turn of the century when in Georgia, there was probably the largest number of lynchings than in any other place in any other time. Literally dozens um, of, of lynchings, you know, more than 100 lynchings at the turn of the century. And so Elijah Muhammad was, was really trying to make sense of, of his reality and the sense of the vulnerability of, of Black people. And one of the questions he asked himself is, you know, wh where are all the men? Black people are getting lynched and Black adults, in particular Black men, can't do anything about it. What's that about, that sense of vulnerability and terror, that, that in the sense that Black bodies were expendable, that, that they could be slaughtered and burned, and disarticulated and mutilated at, at any time? And, and, I, and I want your audience to, to, to try to feel their way into that, to try to get a sense for what that must have been like to live in a Black community where Elijah Muhammad perceived Black people were basically powerless to do anything within this particular social system, which would punish them for doing anything, uh, standing up for themselves, speaking out uh, on behalf of Black people, sometimes to the point of, of death. And so that, that's really important to, 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 to note as a sort of beginning of Elijah Muhammad thinking about what it means to be Black. Uh, what, what does Blackness mean in this world where Black bodies are vulnerable and uh, are subject to gratuitous violence in which the system offers no relief? And so that's, that's really that's really where I want to start. And often when I do presentations on the Nation of Islam, I start by showing pictures of lynchings, pictures of lynchings in front of well-dressed white crowds who would bring their children, who would snap pictures in front of mangled and burning bodies, children and people who were smiling. These were momentous occasions for these, for these white people. But for Black people, they were terrified, right? This was, this was I mean, um, imagine living in a horror film uh, and, 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 and not seeing any way out of this violence. And I really want people to, to get that because that's where Elijah Muhammad starts. That's, that was the way he understood and experienced the world, uh, a world in which Black people were were even in seen in zoos uh, like Otabenga, um, who was uh, an African, I believe, from the what they used to call the pygmies, uh, who was in um, I think it was the Bronx Zoo, where black people were even kept in cages, and and this was following slavery, so it wasn't just the lynchings, but there's this long history of white racial terror that subjects. Black bodies, black embodiment to the whims of, of whiteness, um, both those who are in official positions and those who are not, that they were always subject. And so, again, I want folks to get their minds around that. How might they think about the world 
And then think about the, the narrative uh, that you pointed to that, that shows up that I try to lay out in, in the first chapter, uh, sort of reworking, trying to think about the, the world in a way that makes sense of all of this. Yeah, and um, you you show how uh, Elijah Muhammad kind of utilizes or deploys uh, kind of key mythological, cosmological understandings um, I, I, to to reflect on his position within this kind of lived experience. Can, can you lay out what are these kind of uh, the these these mythological narratives? Uh, you specifically talk about the myth of Yakub, yes. and uh, how does this help uh, Muhammad kind of uh, understand the role of the black body in American society? The myth of Yakub, uh, uh, which is uh, not my term, it's it's a term, of course, that I inherited from uh, scholarship, uh, but also from the Nation of Islam. Of course, they don't call it a myth. Uh, I'm calling it a myth because I want to understand it as highly symbolic, as uh, almost Theodician, not even almost. It's, it's Theodician in the sense that it tries to make sense of Black suffering in a world where, uh, again, Black people die almost for nothing, just for being perceived as being out of place physically or socially or symbolically. And Elijah Muhammad then uh, claims to learn the secret knowledge about the true nature of the universe, the true nature of the origins of the world and the planets and of the races from Master Farad Muhammad, uh, the founder of the Nation of Islam, who, whose origins are also shrouded in mystery. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really complicated narrative or mythology about all sorts of, sorts of things that initially one would have had to have been a part of the Nation of Islam to hear. This was secret knowledge. It was imparted from master to teacher. It was, it was given to those who were in relationship to uh, the teachers in the Nation of Islam about the true nature of the universe. And so it starts with the very origins of the planets uh, and, and the universe. And it goes all the way through, uh, I divide it into five parts. Uh, if you ask me about what the, <laughs> to say what those five parts are off the top of my head, I'm not sure I'll be able to do it. But it ends, of course, with um, uh, the world being remade uh, at the coming of this mother plane, this, this vehicle of, of destruction and regeneration uh, that Elijah Muhammad said he learned from uh, Master Farad Muhammad um, uh, that was built by Japanese scientists uh, on the Japanese islands in um, uh, 1929. And, um, and of course, Japanese were also understood as, as Black. And so this, this, this mythology, this, this cosmology, really understands the world very, very differently. It, it, when I say Blackness, I really I'm really talking about blackness as what I call this surplus category. Blackness refers to black, brown, red, and yellow people, to use the nomenclature of the Nation of Islam, but it also refers to, to, to black people on other planets, such as Mars and Venus. And all of this appears in the Nation of Islam's narrative 
as a means of giving black bodies a sense of transcendence. This is, this is what I argue. All of this, these narratives about uh, black life, the true meaning of it being secretive and being lodged in the symbols of Freemasonry, uh, black life on other planets where black people live to be 1200 years old, nine feet tall, and so on. And blackness as this expansive category of humanity that can't be captured and reduced to, to the uh, white racial terror and the logics and white racial logics are significant given where I started, uh, Elijah Muhammad's background, to give the nation of Islam a new sense of being, a new sense of who they are, and, and, an, and a new sense of pride and authority to engage a world that, that treated Black people like they were not human, like they were, again, just expendable bodies, right? Pure eminence. And so the nation of Islam, through this narrative, understood Blackness then as transcendent, not simply just imminent. Blackness and the meaning of Blackness was connected to other planets, to this UFO uh, that they call the mother wheel or the mother plane. And again, as such can't be reduced then to the meaning of Blackness uh, that might be attached because of slavery or narratives of Black inferiority or lynchings. And this is this is what I was trying to point out um, by laying out that narrative, which actually was was quite challenging, because there is no one version of the narrative of Yaku. It's in bits and pieces, in dozens and dozens of speeches and sermons and writings, and so it really takes a lot and a lot of attention and time to read through all of this and to try to put it together and to render it one coherent story um, and organize it in a way, like I said, I, I, I organize it into five parts that allows readers to make sense of it. Yeah, and uh, so part of what you do with this, this theoretical frame we were talking about earlier um, around in place and out of place. Uh, the the other kind of component here is that uh, each of the figures that you look at as kind of representative um, also are focused um, variously upon kind of the social role of blackness versus symbolic role of blackness. And uh, for Elijah Muhammad, it seems that he's, he's interested in this kind of... Uh, this kind of more symbolic understanding that he constructs through specific uh, ritualized and then these Correct. mythologized differences that you kind of lay out here. Um, can, can you just tell us, uh, you know, how did the social part, um, how, how did he kind of uh, uh, articulate the construction of an ideal black body through the kind of social aspect of being a member of the Nation of Islam, for example? Well, let me go back first uh, to answer your question and say that I don't understand Black bodies in and out of place as a binary. I understand it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, it's it's whether a Black body is in place or out of place has everything to do with perception. And um, a perception, again, from the uh, uh, white racial logics uh, that, I'm, that I'm trying to make apparent here. 
And of course, one can be perceived to be in place or out of place socially or in place or out of place symbolically. And again, even that is connected to a particular social system. I'm talking primarily here of the United States, which again is connected to a, a certain cosmology of, of whiteness as, as central. Uh, let's just say white supremacy. And so I, I want to make that clear. And having said that, Elijah Muhammad was much more interested in the symbolic aspects of this, this uh, a rethinking, remaking Black bodies. He was interested in making Black bodies beautiful culturally and religiously. And so this is why his focus was on these religious ideas and these religious practices. Of course, you're, you're talking about and you're asking me about the social aspects. And by social aspects, when I say uh, socially in place or out of place, I'm talking about the physical body. And so I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like he didn't give that attention to what I'm arguing in the book is that he simply that he privileged the, the symbolic. But of course, the, the social was really important, too, when you're talking about the vitality, uh, the physical vitality of, of black bodies whose lifespan uh, were, was was uh, and life expectancy was considerably lower. Uh, than it is now, uh, and considerably below the average lifespan. I mean, there, there were times when the average slave might have lived 20 years, 20, 25 years. And so this idea of, of helping to reform or remake Black bodies in a way that gave them physical vitality was also really important to Elijah Muhammad. And this is why uh, we see in his work the, the attention to the diet or uh, how these bodies are adorned, uh, the kinds of activities that they were allowed to participate in and not allowed to participate in. Early on, of course, uh, they weren't able to participate in political processes like the civil rights movement, right? All of those were really important because you're talking about a religious leader who was preparing uh, these, these, these bodies, these people for something religious. Right. And so he privileged uh, the symbolic, but it doesn't mean that he ignored the physical body. In fact, he, he gave the physical body quite a bit of attention. But also he wanted to control the activity of the physical bodies in service of the symbolic, which is to say anything that would give bodies negative value, uh, such as uh, buffooning. Uh, or participating in certain social activities like entertainment that he saw would take them away or change their meaning or not give them the religious meaning that he was seeking, he would restrict. It, it doesn't mean that members of the Nation of Islam didn't have freedom, uh, that, they, that they didn't do what they wanted to do. In many cases, there's lots of evidence that said they did. But in terms of his logic, he was focused on the symbolic because he was preparing these people, these members for the world to come and not simply just for this world. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot more to cover, of course, the, the that readers will have to pick up the book to, to explore. Um, you, um, 
you know, you move through the book through these kind of central figures, beginning with Elijah Muhammad, you move to Malcolm X. And uh, part of what you do is um, you uh, you show both the kind of uh, the kind of differences uh, of Malcolm's approach and his prioritizing of the uh, the um, the social uh, over the the symbolic. Correct. Um, but you also, uh, which I think is key, is you also uh, kind of account for um, the kind of continuities that um, kind of uh, were the threads uh, both, you know, bore, uh, during his time uh, in the nation and then after his, uh, you know, the the split or his so-called break. Um, can you talk a little bit about where Malcolm fits into these kind of uh, ideas about um blackness within kind of American society and uh, and then kind of how it's placed within relation, I guess, to uh, Elijah Muhammad's vision. I, I can do that. And uh, one of the things I, I I should point out in terms of the continuity, Elijah Muhammad, what I, what I talk about for Elijah Muhammad is that there were these these features that became important with respect to which bodies were seen as more significant than others. And I call that Elijah Muhammad's ideal embodied economy. And these are, are features such as complexion, gender, uh, intelligence, all sorts of sorts of things that, that I wanna show have their place and play out throughout the life of all these iterations of the nation of Islam even though these people I'm talking about don't always agree with one another, and that's something else that I'm pushing in this book, is that they, they critique one another. And that's what you're pointing out when you're saying that I argue that Malcolm privileged the, the social over the symbolic, and you're exactly right. Uh, part of what I wanted to show is that for Malcolm X, Black bodies have their greatest importance and meaning when they're actually physically active in taking a hold of the world that oppresses them and trying to change that world, which, which means participating in political processes, engaging uh, systems of white supremacy that marginalize Black people, that limit uh, who, they, who and what they can be, and, and, and doing something about that. Whereas Malcolm understood Elijah Muhammad as limiting that. Because Elijah Muhammad, again, and I want to emphasize this, was first and foremost a religious leader. And it doesn't mean that Malcolm X wasn't. He was indeed. But he thought that the nation of Islam could have been the greatest force the world has ever seen in the civil rights movement. And he longed to see Black people stand up and the nation of Islam participate in that movement which they were restricted from, in which they were restricted from participating. And so what we see in Malcolm X, I argue, is the privileging of the social over the symbolic. And that's what, that's what you're uh, uh, getting at in that chapter three on, uh, on Malcolm X. And I argue that that, that is a, an implied critique of Elijah Muhammad. Um, so you... Uh, focus also on uh, Warth Dean Muhammad and his role and leadership in the Nation of Islam and uh, kind of its um, emergence out of 
this kind of post-Nation of Islam period. Um, he, he might be the least familiar of the figures you focus on to, to listeners, though. Um, so do you think you could start just telling us a little bit about who W.D. Muhammad was, what happened under his, his leadership? Yes. Wallace uh, uh, was initially his, his name was the seventh son, the seventh child of Elijah Muhammad. And uh, Wallace had a a really contentious relationship with the Nation of Islam. Um, His father, of course, um, uh, was Elijah Muhammad. And um, Wallace grew to be suspicious of the teachings of uh, the Nation of Islam. Um, He left the Nation of Islam on a few occasions. Um, but according to him and the scholarly record, returned often because he felt threatened, uh, physically threatened, when he left the nation of Islam. When Elijah Muhammad died in 1975, he assumed leadership of the nation of Islam, but he was much more interested in the nation embracing a more universal, uh, at least in, in his eyes, version or Sunni version of of Islam. And so in 1975, of course, uh, he maneuvered um, to take over the nation of Islam and to be its leader, even though one could argue that there were signals that the leader should have been Minister Louis Farrakhan. Uh, And so that that whole thing is, is really complicated. And I talk about that a little bit in the book. But I also talk about how, in many ways, uh, uh, Warith, as he came to be known, it is in his embrace of Sunni Islam, utilized the teachings of his father to frame himself as, uh, including some of these esoteric ideas that come from, from Black folklore, like being the seventh born son, uh, to, to frame himself as the rightful leader of the nation of Islam. And so immediately after he takes over the nation of Islam, he started moving uh, the group toward uh, a more universal uh, uh, practice uh, of Islam. And at the same time, I argue race continued to be very important to him. Worthy Muhammad recognized that, that uh, that white supremacy had done something to devalue uh, the body for black people. And he wanted to ennoble, and that's the word he used, and give culture to to black people, which he thought Islam could do, uh, uh, Islam broadly understood. And so I try to make some sense of that, uh, to, to, to connect him to the nation of Islam, but also to be specific and give specific attention about where he was going and the, the logics behind his embrace of um, uh, uh, Islam uh, more broadly, uh, but also why he thought uh, race and culture were really, really important to give attention to. So, so I argue, of course, that the symbolic was very important for, for him as well. Yeah, and you, you do a really good job of kind of um, showing how these uh, connections between the universality of Islam and the particular experiences of, of African-Americans are, are mediated through his, uh, his, his kind of teachings and perspectives. Um, one of the kind of key shifts that he made in thinking about um, 
African-American Muslims was uh, the use of this term Bilalians. Yes. Um, can, can you tell us what he meant by this term, where, where it came from, and why it made sense for him to use this? Sure, because I, on the one hand, I understand what he's what he was uh, what Warthin was trying to do with this notion of, of uh, African Americans as Bilalians. Uh, on another hand, it was enormously problematic. And so, one of the things I try to do in the book is show how the Nation of Islam, in all these iterations, give attention to these transcendental symbols: uh, uh, Black Life on Another Planet, uh, Bilal, UFOs, and so on, to to give new meaning. Um, to to blackness, a, a new meaning to to black embodiment, and um, Bilal uh, was a slave who was really important for um, uh, Warwithy Muhammad because he was black, uh, and because he was a slave, and so um, because he played a prominent role uh, as a prayer caller uh, in his relationship with the Prophet Muhammad, Warthi Muhammad seized upon that and his, his prominent role in Islam to suggest that this would be an appropriate symbol for a new meaning of, of Black embodiment for African-Americans. And so on the one hand, I, I totally get the logics, right? This need to do something different that gave Black people a new reference uh, that was different from the story of Yakub. Uh, which he would have rejected, but at the same time, which had the power to ennoble Black bodies. And so he took Bilal and made Bilal transcendental, such that Bilal became the symbol of the greatness of Black people within an Islamic context, which, which was also the problem, right? This imposition of this Islamic identity upon all Black people in particular, African Americans, and so he became he, he came to refer to African Americans as Bilalian, uh, which again is a form of violence on the one hand, uh, because you know what what gives him the right to 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 claim this identity for all Black people and say this is this is who Black people are. On the other hand, it's totally understandable because he wanted to lift the meaning of 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 blackness, the, the, the meaning of black bodies from this, this, this genealogy of suffering and violence, uh, um, uh, which was the reference prior to this. Um, and we, we talked about him a little bit, but uh, the, the uh, latter half of the book focuses on uh, the leadership and, and role and and uh, and religious thought of Louis Farrakhan, um, who a lot of people probably know as as a contra controversial public sure. figure, um, yeah, but that's maybe all they know about him. Um, and you you do a great job of kind of exploring uh, his role as a kind of uh, religious leader as well. So, can you tell us a little bit about his uh, his vision for the nation uh, once he he took over? Uh, what are some of his key ideas or or, or practices that that uh, uh, kind of make him a central figure within this narrative? I'm not sure that there's a more misunderstood religious figure in America than Louis Farrakhan. But Louis Farrakhan, uh, it was around 1977 when Farrakhan decided that 
uh, the teachings of Warthi uh, uh, Muhammad had corrupted uh, the teachings of his father, Elijah Muhammad. And around 1977, he told Brock Peters, Brock Peters was an, an actor, I can see his, his face in my mind right now, that he was gonna reconstitute the nation, uh, by which he meant going back to uh, what he saw as the authentic and true teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And he did this um, uh, in 1978, this reconstitution. Of course, he also felt like he was put out of the Nation of Islam and marginalized in Warathin Muhammad's uh, Nation of Islam, um, which only lasted for you know maybe a few years. Uh, I, I think it was even 1978, uh, Warathin Muhammad lectured to the American Academy of Religion, where he was actually he still used the term Nation of Islam, but for the for the most part. The Nation of Islam, as we understood it up to this point, that is uh, mid to late 1970s, no longer existed. And so this isn't a clear lineage. The Nation of Islam under Minister Louis Farrakhan is basically a new Nation of Islam. Now, he, he might not look at it that way. Members of the Nation of Islam might not see it that way. They would see that they're, they're, they're the heirs to the true teachings of the nation of Islam, and they would see themselves as sort of an unbroken lineage. But Minister Farrakhan around 1978 took a remnant of those who had been members of the nation of Islam under Elijah Muhammad and Warathin Muhammad, along with mostly new members, many of whom came from African-American churches, were new converts uh, in black communities, in prisons and so on, to start a very new nation of Islam. Uh, and that's and that brings us pretty much where we are to this day. And Minister Louis Farrakhan has tried very, very diligently to to be true to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, while at the same time embracing a much broader notion of of Islam. And so, for him, uh, members of the Nation of Islam are Muslims in the broader and global sense. Yet, there is a particularity to Black experience in America that only the Nation of Islam can speak to from Minister Farrakhan. And this is where we start getting some of the ideas uh, about things like UFOs and returning to um, uh, the importance of the story of Yakub that are so prominent in the religion and thought of the nation of Islam today. In fact, I argue that the most significant and important religious idea for the nation of Islam and Minister Farrakhan is the idea of the UFO, or what they call the mother wheel or the mother plane. Now I have to uh, say something very, very quickly. The mother wheel becomes important for uh, Minister Farrakhan because he claims to have had a vision, literally an out-of-body experience uh, in, the, in the language of the Nation of Islam, in which he was taken into this, this mother wheel, this vehicle in 1985, September 17, 1985, on a mountain in Mexico. Of course, listeners will have to read the book to get all of the complicated details. But the point I wanna make here is, I wanna understand this, this narrative of the mother wheel in which he claims to have been taken into 
and hearing the voice of Elijah Muhammad and experiencing the presence of Elijah Muhammad and Master Fard Muhammad as an authorizing event that told him and the world that Minister Farrakhan and this nation of Islam was the true nation of Islam over against all the other claims of people who were in these other nation, nations of Islam movements who claim legitimacy. And so it's really the central narrative that scholarship has largely missed precisely because they don't know what to do with it. And this is, of course, where theory and method in the study of religion, I argue, and theory in particular is so important. Because for me, uh, the story of Yaqub, the, uh, this idea of a UFO, and all of this makes perfect sense. Understood, first of all, over against a history of white racial terror. But secondly, in, in the immediate sense in the 1970s, over against claims of others that, that their movement was the true movement that had the right to the, of the lineage of the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's really interesting, and and some of the people that I know that were most excited about the book were uh, people that are doing work on UFO religion and and new religious movements, and uh, so I, I you know you're really making a contribution to lots of different areas, uh, which is is great. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, and if I might say, yeah, please, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, um, that insight and that acknowledgement for the, the nation of Islam, they've been talking about UFOs for a long time. But 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 I want this these narratives of the UFO in the nation of Islam to be understood against the, the enormous interest in the last several years. Uh, the government disclosures of uh, UFOs. Uh, actually, last week, the, um, uh, the Office of Defense National Intelligence released a new um, uh, report on UFOs, some 500 cases that, that weren't reported when they um, uh, released their unclassified report in, I think it was 2020 um, in, uh, in June or July. And, um, and the enormous attention that NASA is now giving to UFOs or the Galileo Project at Harvard, of which uh, I'm also uh, an affiliate uh, uh, researcher. And the nation of Islam, they're going to argue that no one can understand this UFO phenomenon without them, because this UFO actually says something specific about who they are and who Black people are. So they hold the key to all of this UFO craze. I, should, I shouldn't call it craze, but all of this UFO interest uh, that you that you're that you're mentioning among the UFO enthusiasts, among scholars and governmental groups and the military. And so they want to see themselves as central to this conversation and that the world needs, including the government, needs to include them in this conversation because they hold the key to, to what these UFOs really mean. Uh, whereas the world, scientists, government, military and otherwise, misrecognize uh, uh, what they're calling UFOs. They are really this mother wheel and these 1,500 baby wheels uh, that are inside or bombing planes, uh, as Louis Farrakhan uh, calls them, 
inside this mother wheel. So when people say they see UFOs, what they're really seeing are these, these baby wheels or baby planes. And so it really is, and, and again, I want listeners to get that. They want to reduce all of this enormous recent attention as significant ultimately for who black people really are and the importance of the nation of Islam and Minister Farrakhan himself, who says that he's going to this mother plane, this mother wheel, after he, he ostensibly dies. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's super interesting, and you do a, a great job of kind of laying out both the uh, kind of material, social aspect of this, but then also the the kind of cosmological and uh, transcendent sure. perspective. So, um, at the at the end of the book, you you kind of try to um, take a bird's eye view of these various perspectives that are put forth, and. Um, how they kind of idealize or or understand an ideal uh, black body, um, and you you kind of take them to account in thinking about um, kind of communal difference within the African American community, um, and how their vision of uh, blackness uh, in in some ways can perpetuate uh, the kind of uh, terrors of white supremacy, as you, you've been describing. So can, can you talk a little bit about kind of how uh, how differences such as class or gender or, or even religious differences uh, might kind of discount uh, blackness in some particular ways for, for these figures? I'll say this very quickly. One of the things I'm trying to do is to be, uh, again, a really faithful interpreter of the nation of Islam over against uh, a, a lot of sound that I think misreads, misinterprets, misunderstands the nation of Islam, while at the same time being a critical scholar of African-American religion, and in this case of the nation of Islam. And one of the things that I'm, I was trying to point out is that there, there's this line of reasoning and logic within all of the cosmology of the nation of Islam that seeks to remake black embodiment that also marginalizes various embodiments within the nation of Islam, that within the world and African-American community that don't line up to theirs. And so what I argue is there's, there's sort of a hierarchy and a class discourse. And I don't mean that in, in the Marxist sense. Um, uh, obviously, you know, I'm using Pierre Bourdieu to make, to make sense of this but that, that this embodiment in the nation of Islam comes the closest uh, to this ideal black embodiment that we initially get from uh, Elijah Muhammad. And that those bodies that don't line up to this, I argue, uh, are marginal uh, and marginalized uh, within these narratives and, and discourses. And that's basically the uh, these, these other uh, discourses about blackness among African Americans, and that's basically what I'm trying to point out there. Yeah. Um, you also, um, I, I'm glad you added it at the end, uh, a kind of uh, small addendum about how, uh, you know, we we've been talking all about men, really, um, how the role of uh, black women play in the nation of Islam. Um, what, what are your thoughts on how, how your book and your approach might help us think about the role of, of women in the nation? 
One of the things that I tried to do in the epilogue was, was give specific theoretical intention, attention to the meaning of, of Black women's embodiment in the nation of Islam. And of course, it's, it's, it's an interpretive, but also critical perspective that I think is necessary to, um, to make sense of it. But, but I also wanted to signal that we need much more attention uh, to, to, to women in the nation of Islam and uh, what they mean. And the, the critical part, of course, uh, is I'm arguing that the ultimate meaning of Black women's embodiment can only be gleaned through Minister Farrakhan's body and this UFO or this mother wheel. But also to point out that the gap in scholarship uh, on uh, women in the nation of Islam. Um, uh, and that's, that's really what I was trying to, to do there, both to highlight women's agency in, in the nation of Islam, but to point out how we have, have missed in much of that scholarship, uh, what they mean in the nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the other thing that you do at the end, which is great, is, uh, you know, the project uh, of the book really is largely historical uh, in the sense that it's kind of looking at these kind of key moments and these key key figures. Uh, but you you kind of circle back at the end to um, to Farrakhan's perspective, uh, basically today. Um, yes. And uh, you, you focus on um, a kind of significant speech he did in in 2020 um on savior's day and the, this speech was particularly important because it kind of um makes some kind of uh synthesis of his his role his teachings and kind of reflects a little on his his legacy and then you were lucky enough to even add uh um some some final words on uh, things that were happening just a few months ago which is amazing so uh, maybe you could just help us think about um where where does Farrakhan see uh, the nation of Islam um, uh, and and kind of understand the role of blackness in our kind of present moment? One of the things that I was trying to do at the end of the book is to uh, to allow Farrakhan to speak in his own words and in his own voice, again over against the critical noise that has largely constructed Minister Farrakhan uh, in, in, in their own ways. Uh, and to argue that uh, he's misunderstood, um, that his intention is much more universal uh, with respect to how he sees the nation of Islam and uh, to connect that with uh, current trends in UFO studies uh, among scientists and uh, scholars of religion and others in the humanity, and, and to push for a new and more complicated look at Minister Farrakhan that brackets, to the extent possible, some of the misnomers um, and some of the more inflammatory ways that the public has come to, to under understand Farrakhan. And this is why I say in, in that afterward, that this, this, the Farrakhan who appears in that particular part of the book and in that speech will be unrecognizable, will be illegible over against public pronouncements about Farrakhan and the nation of Islam. And I wanted to leave us with that uh, and also, also criticize some of the scholarship uh, and some of the pseudo scholarship 
on the nation of Islam that has got us to that point. Because I think in many ways, these narratives have kept us from, from, from seeing the more complicated nation of Islam and the depths of it that as a scholar, I, I want to make apparent. And that's how that last part for me functions. Well, Stephen, it's, it's a great book, a uh, beautiful cover. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad uh, it's out in the world. Congratulations. Uh, before I let you go, listeners that are sticking with us this long uh, certainly will want to know what uh, you have kind of in the pipeline. What, what kind of things are you working on nowadays? Well, I have two other books under contract. Uh, one is a book actually on Black faculty studies uh, that, that also has very strong contact with the study of religion. And, um, and that's a book uh, that's under contract uh, with Johns Hopkins University Press. It's actually overdue uh, called Ivory Towers, if I can remember the title, Ivory Towers, Regulatory Technologies and the Reproduction of Anti-Black Violence in the Academy, Introducing Black Faculty Studies. Hmm. And uh, my co-authors are uh, Dr. Lori Latrice Martin, who's a sociologist at LSU, and Dr. Biko Mandela Gray, who's a scholar of religion and philosopher of religion at Syracuse University. And I'm also working on uh, uh, another book after that on a religious figure by the name of Robert T. Brown, who was, a, a I think, a precursor of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, who was an occultist who uh, had a short um, life in theosophy. He was a theosophist for a little while, who was also a pan-African nationalist uh, who worked with Marcus Garvey in New York in the 1930s, very closely uh, with him in the 1930s, who was one of the most important and significant figures of his time in the 1920s or 30s, and yet we've forgotten all about him. There's hardly any scholarship on Robert T. Brown, who I argue can help us think about theory of religion. Uh, at the intersection of race, the occult, quantum mechanics, and, and other esoteric ideas that we glean from uh, Robert T. Brown. And, uh, and that book is under contract uh, with Oxford University Press. But again, I'm behind on that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't, uh, we won't hold you uh, in any, uh, any way against that. So good luck. With all of that, thank you. Uh, congratulations on uh, on this wonderful book, and thanks for making time to talk about it. Thank you for your time, your insightful questions, and your patience. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Stephen Finley about his wonderful new book, In and Out of This World, Material and Extraterrestrial Bodies in the Nation of Islam, published with Duke University Press in 2022. We appreciate your support on New Books in Islamic Studies.